If a loving, all-powerful God does exist, then where did evil and suffering come from? Why is our world the way it is? Did God create evil, or did it come from another source? Did evil always exist, or did it appear later? In this episode, we'll dive into the dilemma of the origin of evil in the Bible. Hi, this is Jerome. And this is Grant. Welcome to Reconciled, our podcast where we explore how Jesus finds us where we are, wherever we are, and leads us to where we need to be. Thanks for joining us for another episode. Jerome, the outbreak of the COVID-19 virus has a lot of people asking questions about the origin of evil. You know, who's to blame ultimately for the spread of this pandemic? I know last time we talked a little bit about the dangers of assigning specific meanings to events in the world, but generally speaking, who or what is responsible for evil and how messed up the world seems to be? I think that's a question on a lot of people's minds. Like you said, it's a good question, but I want to start by saying that the purpose of the Bible as frustrating as it might be to us at times, is not to answer every intellectual question we might have on you know, any given issue. The Bible is primarily telling a story of God's purposes. Now, that, that doesn't mean we can't look to the Bible for answers. What I'm saying is that our questions should be answered within the framework of that story. Okay, so let's go with that. So last time we said that the Bible claims that God is all-powerful and all-good. And we see those two aspects of God's character coming together in the creation of the universe. So where does evil come into the story? Well, one of the fundamental claims of Scripture, along with, as you said, God's power and his love, is the goodness of creation. There's a very rich tradition in the Psalms of celebrating nature. The biblical poets address God as the creator, and they sing of how creation reflects his character, a lot like how a a well-built piece of furniture would reflect on the carpenter who made it, or a beautiful garden on the gardener who planted it and cultivated it. You know, Psalm 19 says, "...the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork." So creation is good because it reflects a good Creator. So if we go back to the beginning, the first book of the Bible, Genesis, it actually begins with an account of the creation of the universe over a seven-day period of time. And interestingly, this is a discussion maybe for another time, but he starts out with this dark, chaotic, watery mass, and then he spends a week shaping it into an ordered, beautiful world, you know, teeming with life, with infinite potential for the growth of even more life. And when you go back and read Genesis 1, after each day of creation, God steps back to observe what he made, and each time he calls it good. Then on the seventh day, the last day, God saw everything that he made. Genesis 1, 31 says, and behold, it was very good. Okay, so let me, let me stop you there for just a second, because so far in the story, there's nothing bad. There's no evil on the scene. It sounds like evil's not even a part of God's original creation. It's not a created substance? Right. Instead, evil is a distortion. It's a warping of God's good creation, of his original design. It's like a foreign element that enters creation from the outside. It's unwelcome. The world is rejecting it and struggling against it, a lot like a virus in our own bodies. So in the beginning, everything was very good. 
evil doesn't appear until later through an agent described simply as the serpent, but who we find out later is the spiritual being in disguise. Okay, so let, let's take a moment to talk about this spiritual being, because what you're describing is the devil, and I think Christians talk a lot about the devil and seem to blame everything on him. You know, but where does he come from? I mean, he just shows up on page three as a talking snake with absolutely no explanation. I know, and it's super weird. You know, like I said, the Bible doesn't go into the details and explain it. Uh, we don't find out until later on who this character is. And it takes a little bit of research, but if you tie together a bunch of scriptures, you can get sort of a rough sketch. And the New Testament actually sheds a great deal of light on this character. First off, there are different names given to this character, and they're not proper names. They're actually titles or designations that describe his character. In the Old Testament, he's described as the Satan, and that's a Hebrew word that just means adversary. So he's described as an enemy, an adversary of God and, and, and everyone and all people. And he's called the accuser. He's, this is like, you know, legal jargon in a courtroom setting to describe his role. He's, he's accusing God of things. He's accusing the judge. He's accusing people. You see this in the book of Job. Um, this character talked about this way. And the same idea is used in the New Testament. The word devil uh, is a word which means slanderer because he's falsely accusing God and people. There are many other titles, too. He's the tempter. He's the father of lies. Jesus calls him a murderer from the beginning, the destroyer, the ruler of this world. Jesus' favorite name for him or it was simply the evil one. Nowhere in Scripture is he given the dignity of a name. Rather, he's always described in terms of his character. So we might not have all the information we want, but here's at least what we know for sure. The devil is a created spiritual being. He's not God. He's not eternal. He's ultimately answerable to God. Uh, and he's this created spiritual being that evidently went rogue and chose not to live under God's authority. He's evil distilled in spiritual form, completely devoid of righteousness, love, truth, and his goal is to try to deceive as many people as he can into rebelling against God. Okay, so the devil is the source of all evil. He's the problem, the one responsible for bringing evil into the world? The short answer is yes, but he does so through human beings. The devil's work is to sow doubt and suspicion against God in the human heart. We see this over and over and over again in the Bible. That's why Jesus and, and John both say that the devil has children. He has offspring. That is, he plants that seed of doubt in our minds where we question God and doubt God, but we have to water it. We have to cultivate it for it to take root. And if we entertain those doubts and we feed those lies, it results in us, you know, making rebellious and selfish choices that damage ourselves and everyone else around us. And through those rebellious choices, the devil gets hold of us and works through us. So it's not like the devil is forcing people into rebellion. It's not the devil made me do it, but a joint effort, I think, that you're describing. We become his children when we give into that voice. Yes, and it's an important 
thing to point out because when we rebel against God, we're both victims of the devil's work on the one hand and his co-conspirators on the other. We're fellow culprits with him. Therefore, we actually share the burden of guilt. Now, this all comes out in a story that takes place in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. God places human beings in a literal paradise. You know, all their needs are met, abundantly provided for, and they're given freedom, you know, to fulfill their created purpose, to rule all of creation on God's behalf, to have dominion over creation. And they do that by cultivating this garden so that its growth would spread out and eventually cover the entire world with God's order and his beauty and his blessing. In this garden, we find out, is like an orchard. It's filled with all sorts of beautiful trees, fruitful trees that they could eat from, including this tree called the tree of life, which gave them eternal life. They were free to eat to their heart's content from all of these trees, except for one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said that if they ate the fruit from that tree, then they would die. And I think it's pretty clear that God created us to live and not die. So all that they had to do was follow the one rule. It seems like a no-brainer that they can either live together in peace with God in a literal paradise where all of our needs are met for all eternity, or they can die. I know, that's what makes what happens next so crazy. So think of it like this. The tree represents a moral choice. You know, We can either follow God's wisdom his definition of right and wrong, or we can choose to seize autonomy for ourselves and define morality for ourselves. And what God is teaching in the book of Genesis to Adam and Eve, the first human beings, is that he wants to be the one to set the boundaries of morality for us. He wants to teach us what's good and right and safe from what's bad and wrong and dangerous. So, Following God's wisdom and trusting in him results in life. But going outside of that moral framework lies death. But if God created us to live, then why even put the tree in the garden in the first place? Why, why is it right there in the midst instead of on some island or on top of a mountain? In fact, why does there even have to be a tree in the first place? It seems like by putting that choice before humans, God is leaving the door open for all kinds of terrible things, loss, pain, suffering, everything that's evil. You're exactly right, and this is an important thing to bring out. God gave humanity something that he didn't give the rest of his creation, the dignity of moral choice. See, when we make decisions that go beyond mere animalistic survival, decisions based on principle— we reflect God's image and we glorify him in a unique way. God designed all of creation to glorify him, all of creation with an instinctual, irresistible impulse to fulfill his word. That's what Psalm 148 is all about, how all of these birds and waterfalls and the stars and everything, all of nature glorifies God. Birds sing. That's what they do. Stars shine. Flowers bloom. They do what they were created to do. But God desires human beings to choose to fulfill their purpose. Obeying a natural compulsion is one thing, but weighing a decision 
And choosing obedience, that is a deeper, that's a more profound action. It's an action of love. And love is what human beings were designed for. In giving us free will, you're right, God is leaving the door open to danger and death and evil, but God is also leaving the door open for something else, love. So you're saying that without free will, love couldn't exist. Yes. Look at it this way. There are only four possibilities. Number one, God could have created nothing where there's no possibility for good or for evil to exist. Number two, God could have created an amoral universe where there's no such thing as good or evil. Number three, God could have created a universe without free will where there's no possibility of evil, but that also leaves out the possibility of good. Or God could have created a universe with free will where there is the possibility of both good and evil. Now, the only universe in which love can exist is that last possibility a universe where we have the power of choice. If we erase free will, we also erase the possibility of giving and receiving love. These two concepts, love and choice, they depend on one another. You can't force a person to love you, you know, because then it ceases to be love. For love to be love, it has to be a choice. It has to be freely given. And God wants us to choose to return his love. So the elimination of free will would have eliminated the possibility of suffering and evil, but it seems like it also would have nixed any chance we had of real love. Right. But this still presents a challenge, because on the one hand, a universe without pain and death sounds great, but life really wouldn't be worth living without love. You know, To Jesus, love was the main thing, the greatest commandment. It's what we were made for, and yet love leaves us extremely vulnerable to pain and loss. Yeah, it's a risky business, but, you know, that's every human relationship, isn't it? I mean, love is what gives a relationship its value, but love is also the thing that makes loss and betrayal cut so deep. I mean, we're hurt most by the people that we are invested in the most, the people that we love the most. But like you said, love is what we're built for. We are at our most human when we're loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves, So God wants us to return his love. And in so doing, we actually discover what it means to be human and who we really are. And this is why despite the danger and the vulnerability, we always keep our hearts open to love because when someone loves you for who you are, it's just that good. So Tennyson was right then to go to the old quote, "'Tis better to have loved and lost than have never loved at all." (laughs) Okay, okay, so we'll get back to the story. Why did Adam and Eve rebel then? All right, we go back to Genesis 3. Remember the serpent. He begins by undermining God's love and goodness. He actually confronts Eve in the garden and makes God out to be extremely restrictive. He says to her, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And Eve responds, of course not. You know, God only forbade one tree. He hasn't been as restrictive as that. Note what the serpent does, though. He seizes on that one restriction, and he warps that law into a tyrannical, oppressive law. You know, God gave them that commandment to protect them, to preserve their life. But the serpent, there he is, accusing God of trying to hold them back from their fullest potential. He says, no, 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 God was lying. You won't die, for God knows when you eat of it, 
your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So there's the serpent doing his work, sowing doubt and suspicion in the human heart, accusing God of being something he's not. Yeah, and it worked. You know, the humans seize autonomy for themselves. And through that rebellious choice, they cause this cosmic rift that drives all of creation, including humanity, away from God. Instead of living by God's wisdom and the freedom of love and spreading God's blessing throughout the world, they actually introduce a curse of death and sin that reverberated out into creation and affected everything. And as a result, heaven and earth, God's space and our space that were once intertwined and overlapping are now separated. And the creation is now infected with this disease of death Humans are cut off from God's presence and from the tree of life. And each party involved, Adam, Eve, and the serpent, they all share the burden of guilt and they have to live with the consequences. And is that how we get the world as it is, where it's beautiful in a way, but it still seems fundamentally broken? Yes. You know, instead of us ruling creation on God's behalf and living by God's wisdom, which is what God wanted in the beginning, we actually forfeit our dominion. And now the devil, as Paul says, and as Jesus say in the Gospels, the devil is the prince or the ruler of this world. It's like he's taken control over it. John even says in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we can see the effects of his rule all around us today. Okay, so wait a minute, because you said before that the Bible is telling a story and that one of the fundamental claims of scripture was the goodness of God's creation. If that's the case, where's the story headed? It sounds like God has abandoned creation. Well, along with the goodness of creation, another fundamental claim of Scripture is God's commitment to justice. God cares passionately about putting right that which is wrong in the world. So the hope of justice being done, you know, the devil being held to account in a final end to suffering and evil, came in the form of a promise right there in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3, God addresses Adam and Eve, and he explains to them, you know, what life on earth is going to be like as a consequence of their choice. The world's become hostile. It's become a cursed place that threatens life. Raising children, farming, cultivating the ground, and just life in general is going to be a painful experience. And of course, people die now in this world. But God also has a word for the serpent. When God talks to the serpent, he curses the serpent, and he says that there's going to be constant war between his children and God's people. But in the end, he promises that a hero would emerge and crush evil at its source. He says this, he shall bruise your head, talking to the serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. So in this way, it's kind of a prophesied mutual destruction. Exactly. It's a poetic picture of a person crushing the head of a poisonous snake, but at the last second, it reaches up and it bites his heel so that they both die. And that promise is just left hanging there for years, and we're left to wonder what it's all about and who this snake crusher is. But one thing is clear, at the very beginning, God promised to deal with the problem of evil in a final way. So as soon as evil entered the scene, God already had a plan to deal with it. 
it sounds like he was prepared, like he knew that humanity would ultimately fail. Yes, and that's why the Apostle Paul in the New Testament calls this the eternal purpose of God in the book of Ephesians. Before the foundation of the world, God had a plan to deal with the evil that threatens and infects his good creation to finally put things right. And Paul goes on to say that God has fulfilled his eternal purpose in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Jesus enters the scene as the snake crusher. Yeah, John says that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. And Jesus experienced all that it means to live as a human in this broken world. And he was constantly surrounded by people suffering in the grip of the evil one. But Jesus fights back. You know, in one story, Jesus confronts the devil in the wilderness who tempts him to rebel against God. But Jesus did something no other human being has done. He relies on God's wisdom. He was faithful to God's word. He actually resisted the devil. It's like wherever Jesus went, instead of the curse infecting him, the curse was being lifted and being rolled back. I mean, sick people are being healed, slaves are set free, sinners are forgiven, the good news is being preached to the poor. The devil just couldn't get a hold of Jesus like he could with other people. In fact, it was just the opposite. The devil was being defeated. Okay, but Jesus still dies a criminal's death on a Roman cross, like one who's cursed by God. Yes, but that's only the way it looked from the outside. Jesus' suffering and his death on the cross was actually the paradoxical snake-crushing moment of Genesis 3, verse 15. If that's the case, then why is the world still a mess? There's just as much suffering and death today as there ever was. If God is committed to his creation and setting things right, how do we know he's ever going to bring an end to evil? The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is God's answer to that question. God's first act of renewing creation and setting things right, his commitment to the goodness of creation, his commitment to justice, was actually with the body, the physical body of Jesus. When Jesus was raised from the dead, his body was made new. It was strangely transformed. It was a physical body, but it was different. It was incorruptible. And that renewed human body acts as a living, breathing signpost that marks the end of one age of sin and death and the beginning of a new age of forgiveness, grace, and new life. And now Jesus is reigning as the king in heaven over all things, and all things in heaven and earth are being brought under subjection to him. And the last enemy that will be destroyed is death itself. Okay, so there's still one more act to the play. One more future event that we're all waiting for? Yeah, the Bible calls this moment the judgment, which has both a negative and a positive sense. In judgment, God will settle all accounts. Justice will be done. Evil will be dealt with in an ultimate, irreversible way. But justice also has a positive side. God is going to vindicate the oppressed. He's going to restore what was lost. He's going to mend what was broken. In the judgment, this world that's infected with sin and death, that's, as Paul says, groaning in pain, will give birth to a new world where sin and death can never touch it again. And if we join ourselves with Jesus in his death and his resurrection, we too will inherit new bodies just like him. So in Jesus, evil and death won't get the last word. Exactly. 
Today we dug into the biblical narrative to answer the question of the origin of evil and what God has done and will do to answer it. In the next episode of this five-part series, we plan to discuss something we touched on today, the crucifixion of Jesus, and how Jesus' suffering and death on the cross are God's ultimate answer to the problem of pain. Thank you all for listening, and hope you tune in next time.